morning we are celebrating the beginning of what is known as Holy Week. Um, specifically this Sunday uh, is known as Palm Sunday. So we're going to be taking a brief uh, two-week detour from the Minor Prophets and um, we're going to consider over the next two weeks Holy Week what occurred that week why it's important. So, if you would, please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. And our text for preaching this morning is going to be what Michael read, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read them again. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray that um, you would give me clarity of speech and thought and help us to understand what this text says to us about Christ and about ourselves, and may this all be done to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, to the person who does not know the Old Testament, this scene might be a little bizarre. Um, Here we see Jesus is entering into the final stretch, the home stretch of his earthly ministry and mission. He's about to make what is called his triumphal entry into the holy city of Jerusalem. You might expect that there would be more pomp and circumstance to this. After all, this is the entry of the Messiah finally come to deliver his people. After all these centuries, it's been hundreds of years this has been anticipated. And he's finally here, and he's finally coming. So you'd think maybe, you know, we're going to throw a parade or something. Instead, we see Jesus telling two of the disciples to go to a certain place where they would find a donkey and her colt tied. He tells them that as soon as they find this donkey and colt to untie them and bring them back to him. Should they run into any trouble from the owners or perhaps someone that's watching these animals for the owners, all that they needed was to say that the Lord had need of them 
and that would end the trouble. They, they would be able to bring them. How Jesus knew of this, we're not told. Um, perhaps this was a place he had been before and he knew who the animals belonged to from a past trip or something along those lines. Or perhaps, and I think this is more likely, um, this was an example of the divine omnipotence of his God nature. But regardless of how he knew, he knew. He knew where they were. Uh, he knew who they belonged to. He knew uh, where to tell them to go get them. And he knew if they ran into any problems, what needed to be spoken. Whoever this was apparently knew who the Lord being referred to was. You say it that way. <clears throat> then in verses 4 through 5, we see what was going on here. Just as was the case with his entire earthly ministry, and indeed with his entire life, Jesus was doing this with a view toward fulfilling the Scriptures. Earlier in uh, Matthew 5, we read of Christ's own explanation concerning His ministry on earth. Uh, He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's a very important word, fulfill. The Greek word translated as fulfill is plerosi, and the idea behind it is to accomplish or to complete something. We see a different form of this word translated as fulfill in this passage, in uh, 21.4. It takes on a different form, same word though. Um, So while it is proper to understand that Jesus was saying that he came to more fully explain the law and the prophets as some interpret it, I do think that is proper to think that way. He was not merely saying that he came to more fully explain the law and the prophets. He literally came to complete what the prophets had spoken from God. This is made clearer by the next verse. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished, or perhaps more literally, until everything should happen. Everything prophesied should happen. So, back in this passage in chapter 21, we see that nothing's changed. That was towards the beginning of his ministry. Now we're coming to the end of his ministry, and this has been consistent throughout. Jesus was fully aware that he was marching toward a shameful death at the hands of the priests and scribes as he prepared to enter Jerusalem. But the thing that was on his mind was to ensure that everything in the Scriptures was fulfilled or accomplished. Think about that. Jesus held Scripture in the highest regard. And we as His disciples should do likewise. Within the week, He would rebuke the Sadducees with this question. Have you not read what was said to you by God? In his high priestly prayer, again, something that would happen within a week of this event, Jesus prayed this to God the Father. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have 
manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Then you skip down and it says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. And then you skip down a little more. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. The point of all this is just simply that Jesus viewed Scripture as nothing less than the Word of God. And He, being the Son of God, rightly viewed it as His mission to accomplish all that was set out for Him in that sacred Word. In fact, you, uh, what I was reading from was mainly in Matthew, that high priestly prayers in John, but if you look in Luke, you even see uh, 12-year-old Jesus in the temple. Don't you know I should be about my father's business? That young. He always knew and he always held it in that high regard. Not only that, he prayed that the Father would set apart his disciples in the truth. And then he defined truth specifically as God's word. In 2 Timothy, Scripture is explicitly stated to be theonostos, which means God breathed, literally breathed out by God. And therefore it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, Scripture is the sufficient, final, and sole, infallible rule for the faith and practice of the church of Jesus Christ because that's what Jesus Christ said about it. That's the rule He gave us. That's the rule He followed. Now this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. So what uh, what was it that was spoken by the prophet here? Um, well, the prophet in this case was Zechariah which we had that in our call to worship this morning. And the quotation is Zechariah 9.9. In Matthew's Gospel, it is paraphrased as, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. But the full verse in Zechariah has a bit more content. Um, And I think... It's not that Matthew was misquoting or anything like that. It's just he was wanting to put a certain emphasis here. But the fuller verse in Zechariah, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there are several things that should jump out at us from this text. First, since Jesus was doing this with the intention of fulfilling Scripture, it is clear that He understood Himself to be the Messianic King of whom this Scripture foretold. That's how He viewed Himself. When Pilate was questioning Jesus, He asked Him, 
Are you the king of the Jews? He didn't deny it. He didn't say, oh, where'd you get that idea? That's crazy. No, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So Jesus' answer served two purposes. It showed that he was not the political revolutionary come to free Israel from their Roman bonds many had expected in the Messiah. So that's one thing. But the second point was one that was not lost on Pilate himself. Because Pilate responded, So you are a king! Because see, he's talking about my kingdom is not of this world. Well, if you have a kingdom, you're a king, right? So that was not lost on Pilate. So you are a king. And again, Jesus did not deny it. He said, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Well, he defined truth earlier in that prayer, right? In other words, he came to bear witness to the Word of God, to fulfill, accomplish the Word of God. He said, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So, yes, Pilate, I am a king. Yes. But I am a king in a greater sense than a mere political savior of this worldly, earthly kingdom of Jerusalem. I am the king over the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God that will not be bound by geography or anything else. Everyone who is of God obeys men. They are my subjects. Now, what kind of king is Jesus? So he clearly views himself as a king. What kind of king is he? Well, Zechariah declared him to be a righteous king and a savior. But again, he was not the kind of king that many were expecting. They wanted a king who would throw off the Roman yoke of oppression and return Israel to the glory days of David and beyond. We're going to reach new heights here. We're going to conquer the world through worldly means with our righteous Messiah. That's kind of the idea. Now to be sure, Jesus is a righteous king who carries out righteous judgments. That's true. And he is a savior. Um... While he would eventually destroy the Roman Empire because it's not there anymore. He, he did destroy the Roman Empire. Um, just not necessarily in the way that was expected. Um, he did come to be a savior from so much more than just this man-made empire. Scripture says his name, his very name, was commanded to be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Something far greater than just, oh, rah, rah, look at our little political entity, our nationalism and such. No. Uh, He came to save his people from their sins. Jesus came to set the world right by saving a people for himself 
atoning for their sins and giving them His righteousness. This was the mission given Him by the Father that He was entering Jerusalem to complete. And we know that He would go on to do just that. He would complete it. He would die a shameful death on the cross and rise again victorious over the final enemy, which is death itself. Our risen Lord declared to His disciples that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. And we know all these things to be facts. And I think we talk about them a lot here. But do we live like we believe it? Um, I'll admit, I can be one of the world's worst about this particular matter here. Things happen in our lives that make us upset. Um, Perhaps we're even downright pessimistic at times. Uh, We complain about the trajectory of the culture. I mean, it's not a secret. It's not going in the right direction right now. Um, We complain about maybe the way our employers mistreat us in our eyes, whether they're really doing it or not. They're not doing what we want, so we complain about it. Um, We complain about, you know, that one family member with a screw loose, and we just can't seem to figure out how we're going to get through to them. Uh, We complain about this or that thing at church, maybe. Uh, We just complain and we complain and complain some more. Everything's just awful. But are we supposed to be the people that serves this one who claims kingship over all creation? Where is our confidence in those moments when we're complaining? Why are we so grumpy? If Jesus is the king over all creation and is able to save us from death, hell, and the grave, what of these lesser matters? Is he not sovereign over those things too? Is he not sovereign over every situation in which we find ourselves? Whether it be dealing with that family member with the screw loose or dealing with that employer who's not our favorite person, maybe. Or maybe we're not their favorite person, however that goes. But isn't God sovereign over the fact we're in that situation? Did he not put us there for some purpose? Um, Is he who has all authority in heaven and earth not working even the most difficult and the most minute of situations we face for our ultimate good and to His glory? We say we believe that, but in practice, do we? The text also says that Jesus is a humble king. He is often referred to as the servant king. Throughout His ministry, Jesus associated with the most unlikely of people, at least from a worldly perspective. Uh, We often see him healing the sick, blind, mute, deaf, and lame, casting out demons, and interacting with known sinners. And the world looked on with this, maybe not so much the healings, but especially the eating with sinners part. The world looked on with this puzzled. Why is he he eating with sinners? Why is he going to Zacchaeus' house? What in the world is this? That guy? No, write him off. He's horrible. Why are you talking to him? This girl over here who's in prostitution. Why are you talking to her? This happens over and over again. 
See, Jesus is the only human to have ever lived that had the right to boast of his own righteousness. But instead, the kingdom of glory, or the king of glory rather, served the lowliest of humanity. He sought out the ones who were spiritually empty of themselves, crushed under the weight of their sins, and ready to be filled by him and his righteousness. Scripture says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And elsewhere it says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Not the self-righteous, not the ones who falsely believe they have somehow done something to merit favor with God, even if it was in cooperation with Him for help. No, He came to seek and to save those who were lost and knew they were lost. He is the one who does both the seeking and the saving of the lost. It wasn't that the lost were seeking Him because they were lost. (laughs) He is the good shepherd that finds the lost sheep and saves the lost sheep. The righteous King who could rightly bring divine, eternal justice upon our heads instead substitutes Himself in our place and gives us His righteousness So that instead of receiving what we deserve, we receive what He deserves. Becoming adopted as sons of God through Him and fellow heirs with Him. And since we are the subjects of such a king, again, we too ought to be servant-minded. Or think of it this way. We are the servants of the servant king. How could we be anything else? Our Lord said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is how the kingdom of our Lord conquers the nations of the world. The church does not put on physical bodies of armor and carry physical weapons of war to conquer the kingdoms of this world. It's not how that works. Rather, our, our war is a spiritual one. We war against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And therefore, our armor and weapons are for spiritual warfare. Notice in the passage I'm referencing here, in Ephesians 6, that the only offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which, interestingly enough, is the exact same thing that Jesus prayed the Father would sanctify us by. It is appropriate to meet physical needs of people as uh, this shows love and concern to be genuine. We ought to genuinely care that the physical needs of people are being met people who are fellow bearers of the image of God. We should not turn a blind eye when somebody's having health issues or they run into some sort of financial trouble um, that was something they couldn't help or something like that. No, we should be very much concerned about this. However, 
the way we love people best, the way we war over their souls, is that we use the word of God to point them to Jesus, the only one who can save them. The most loving thing we can do for people is tell them about our Savior, the one who has saved us, in the hopes that He will become their Savior also. And we can do so confidently knowing that Christ will indeed save all His lost sheep for whom He died. In verses 6 and 7, we see the disciples obeyed Christ's directives. I don't have a lot to say about that, um, except for just one brief thing here. Um, Despite their possible confusion, the text does not say whether they understood what Jesus was doing here or not. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I don't know. Um, But I will say, if they did not understand what he was doing, certainly they had to be confused about this command. So despite this possible confusion... Uh, over this command to go to this certain place and without asking anyone else's permission, taking these animals and perhaps risking the appearance that they were thieves, stealing these animals, they nevertheless trusted Jesus and they obeyed Him and they never even questioned Him. The Lord said, do it, so I did. That's it. This sets a good example for us. We may not always understand why we are to do this or that thing, but what matters is that we obey our Lord. Now moving to these final verses, starting in uh, verse 8, we see that uh, Jesus' intention was not lost on the crowd. They knew the Scriptures themselves and understood that by entering Jerusalem, Jesus was making a direct claim to the throne of David. These are the people that had been looking for this for hundreds of years, right? They knew what it meant. And they must have believed in him, at least in some sense, because they did do what the text said. They received him with joy. They spread their cloaks and tree branches on the road out of respect for the king. And they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, of course, that title, son of David, that means Messiah. Anytime you see that phrase there, that's a direct claim to being the Messiah the prophesied one to come. But uh, this word, Hosanna, it literally means save now. So the crowds were literally shouting of the salvation of the Lord that was coming through the Son of David who was sent from the Lord. I mean, the entire city was in an uproar. That's what we read at the very end of the text, right? Think of that for a moment. Just this huge city acknowledging Him. Rightly acknowledging Him. They acknowledged Him as King. And not only that, they appealed to Him for salvation. 
Many of them must not have understood exactly how the Son of David would bring salvation to them. And we know that because many of them were probably the same ones who less than a week later would be shouting quite the opposite. They would be saying, crucify him and mocking him. Save yourself. But you know, at least at this moment, crowds acknowledge Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. Uh, one commentator put it this way. He comes to deliver up himself into their hands their king comes to be murdered by his subjects and to make his death a ransom price for their souls. Is that not an amazing thought? Jesus got right to work after he entered the temple, or he entered the city. He went straight to the temple and he drove out the money changers and he healed the blind and the lame and our prophet and king would have several exchanges with the priests, scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees over this week. And Jesus famously pronounced seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees before finally the king pronounced judgment against them and the city. And I think maybe sometimes we forget the context when, and I'm about to read these words of Christ, um, but... The next time you read it, keep in mind, this is the king pronouncing this judgment. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. By the way, the opposite of what Jesus was doing. Jesus was fulfilling the prophets. They hated. They gave them lip service, but the content, no. They hated the prophets, and in fact, they were the ones that killed them. The precise opposite of Christ. Um, And he says, The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But did they not do that when he came into Jerusalem? Only with their lips. From there, Jesus would go on to tell his disciples, um, because, of course, this naturally led to questions from the disciples. Oh, this is not good. When will this happen? When will these things be? So Jesus would go on to explain that to them um, in the lead-up to his crucifixion um, and the uh, Mount of Olives the Olivet Discourse that we uh, often talk about. Yep, he's explaining to them the lead up to these events and what will happen when they occur. And eventually it did happen, just as he said. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. Just like he said. Um, that might seem like a strange place to stop, but Lord willing, my intention is for us to consider the fulfillment of Christ's priestly function in his uh, crucifixion and then, of course, his resurrection on Resurrection Sunday next week. Um, So that's where we're going to stop today. Uh, I would like to close by extending the offer that if there's anyone here this morning who has not bowed the knee to King Jesus in humble submission, confessing your sins and your absolute need of a righteous Savior, 
please do so today. If you feel the weight of your sin and the just condemnation of God over it, come to Jesus. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. He's humble. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Essentially what I am calling us all to do is just this. Find rest in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our humble, righteous servant, king, and savior. Help us to consider what we can learn from this text, from his high regard for scripture, and his meticulous attention to detail, to ensure that every every jot and tittle was fulfilled. Also help us to follow his example in humility, not seeking to puff up our own selves and and gratify our own pride in any way, but help us to remember that we are, apart from him, completely and totally spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to boast about, only things for which we should be ashamed. So help us to be grateful and thankful that he bore our sin and our shame on the cross. Help us to live obedient lives in the light of the fact that we have been set free from these things by him. And help us to spread this good news, this best of news, um, to a lost and dying world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.